Alrighty guys, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 29 today. It says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath hath left, had left us to a, poster, to a posterity, left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that you've given us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord. You've given us understanding. And I just pray for, for more understanding this morning uh, of your word as it's, as it's brought out, Lord, that, that you would feed your people with it and your name would be glorified. Your people would be edified and strengthened and comforted by your word. We're just grateful that, that we have it. I just ask now for your, that you give me the words to speak forth and cause me to be invisible during the message and people, your people to see you high and lifted up. For you are worthy, Lord. In the name of Christ. Amen. So by way of review, we saw last, last time we met, uh, before Christmas, we saw Hosea, that um, Paul gave us the picture of Hosea and Gomer um, as the picture of Israel. As Israel was, was the covenant-breaking people, as Gomer was the covenant-breaking people. But Hosea was faithful in it, and as we saw that God is faithful in covenant. When God makes covenant with somebody, he's faithful in his portion of the covenant. Israel was not faithful in their portion of the covenant. And we actually get to see some more of that today here when we come to this, this portion of Scripture right here. And remember, the greater context of this chapter is to display that God keeps His Word. That God is a covenant-keeping God, right? Because at the end of chapter 8, Paul says, nothing will separate us from the love of God. But then you see him quoting Old Testament verses where it talks about, the, though the number be as the sands of the sea, there's still only a remnant that will be saved. So when you're looking out with your physical eyes, you may think that God does not keep covenant because people aren't saved who said they were saved. Because they were Israel. Because they are Israelite, they, they claim to be saved, but they weren't actually saved. And that's what Paul's been dealing with in the greater context of this chapter. So then we come to here. I've got a little intro on this, um, which I just mentioned part of it. The, the theme of this chapter is that God is a covenant-keeping God because of how he closed chapter 8. And the natural question would be, what about the Jews? If nobody's separated from the love of God, what about the Jews? And Paul has clearly shown that election is from the sovereignty of God. It's not that God looks through the corridors of time and sees who believes and who doesn't believe and then elects according to that because nobody would ever believe. Faith is a gift. God must give his elect faith in order to believe. If he doesn't give faith, nobody believes. So we saw that, that election is from the sovereignty of God. God chooses whom he wills 
And who are we to question God? That's pretty much Paul's argument. He's also shown us God hardening Pharaoh and showing mercy to Moses. To, telling, to God telling Hosea that God is going to call a people who were once not his people. And it would be said to them in that place that they are his people. So he, he told, told Hosea that there's a people that aren't, that aren't my people right now that will be my people. And the, remember in Hosea, he, he named, named his children pretty much God's judgment upon Israel. That though you say you're my people, you're not my people. And Paul gave us that picture there. So those that... Those people that were once not his people would be called sons of the living God. And this, this, this displays that the Gentiles are being grafted in. Now he goes back to the Jews here. And he displays that God is merciful and gracious and loving. And if he wasn't, all of Israel would have been damned. A remnant wouldn't have been saved if God wasn't gracious and merciful. So let's jump into this. The first... Well, I've got three points like always. The, the, the first point is the righteous judgment of God. The second point is even within the righteous judgment of God, there is salvation. And the third point is righteous judgment of God is meted out on Christ. For the first point here, the righteous judgment of God. You know, it says in our, in our verse 27 there, it says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Does that sound like familiar language? We should know this language, right? It's very familiar. This is, this is, there's a covenant in the old that uses this language, right? The Abrahamic covenant. And we don't need to turn back there, but let's take our minds back there real quick. God takes a pagan moon worshiper named Abram, right? Out of his land, he takes him out of his land and tells him that he is going to greatly bless him and multiply, multiply his seed as the stars of the heaven and the sands which are on the seashore. That's, that's the covenant that was made. That was the covenant. And what is something we've seen repeatedly in this chapter, and I say often, God is a covenant-keeping God. If He told Abraham that, He was going to do it. He told him, he told him that's what He's going to do, and that's exactly what He's going to do. And nothing in all of existence could have stopped it. Now Paul here in Romans 9 is actually quoting from Isaiah and he's saying it did happen. Physically, right? I mean, God promised a people, a nation, or better yet, God told Abram that he would make him a great nation. He would make you a great nation is what he told him. And God did it. He took a pagan moon worshiper, changed him, gave him a new name, Abraham, and blessed him with the son of promise, Isaac, who had Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, from whence we get the 12 tribes of Israel and the great nation of Israel, right? God kept His promise. They grew into a great nation as God promised in His covenant to Abraham. Now, I believe this expands in Christ, but that's a longer message for another day. There was a physical nation that was to be born. And grow to a great number. And that happened just as God said it would. Now Paul points us to Isaiah 10 to drive his point home. And that point is, all of this is God's work. And it's up to him what he does with people. And we ought not to expect mercy 
to a covenant-breaking people. But God is a covenant-keeping God. So let's go back here to uh, Isaiah chapter 10 and see, see this in his context. It's Isaiah 10, verse 20. Isaiah 10, 20, it says, Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So I want to see four things from this, this, this little portion right here. It will be real quick four things. But the first thing is, there is a destruction coming on Israel. And it was the destruction coming on Israel by the Assyrians, and it was by the hand of God. God brings in the Assyrians to destroy Israel because of their disobedience and covenant breaking. God did it. The second thing is, the first thing is there, there's a destruction coming to Israel. The second thing is, it is decreed. That's what it says. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed. It is decreed. This means... It's not as though God just thought of this at some point in time. All God's decrees are from eternity. He doesn't, like the saying, has it ever occurred to you that no new thought has ever occurred to God? He never had a new thought. You can't when you're omniscient, right? He knows everything. There is no new thoughts. So his decrees are from eternity. So there was a destruction that was coming on Israel by the Assyrians, by the hand of Almighty God. It is decreed. The third thing is, it's complete. It says, for a complete destruction. It isn't just one person. He isn't just coming to, to bring destruction on one person, or to one house, or to a portion of the land. It says it's a complete destruction. The Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. That's what it says. This happened in 722 B.C. When the Assyrians invaded and destroyed Israel. The northern kingdom. The ten, the ten tribes. The, the, the northern tribe in 722. Assyria came in and destroyed that nation. So there was no more. So now you had the bottom two tribes. This is a little history lesson I guess. But the bottom two tribes which was called Judah. From whence we get the word Jew right. The bottom two tribes was Judah, and that's what happened. That's, that, those bottom two tribes are what, what, what existed when Christ came. He is a lion from the tribe of Judah. So this happened. It was complete destruction. And the, the last, and I think probably the most important thing is, it was in righteousness. There was a destruction coming. It was going to be a complete destruction. It was decreed from eternity past, but it was in righteousness. That's what it says here as well. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. God did this in righteousness. 
It wasn't in some fit of rage, but in righteousness that this happened. It says it's overflowing with righteousness. God, what God does in bringing in the Assyrians to destroy Israel was righteous. We don't look at it like that now, do we? It, it, when, we, when we say, oh, well, God destroyed this nation, we think that's unrighteous. But it was actually righteous. He did this in righteousness. He brought in the Assyrians, which were pagan worshipers, to destroy a people that said they were followers of Yahweh. He brought in those pagan worshipers and destroyed them, and he did it in righteousness. What God does in bringing in the Assyrians to destroy Israel was righteous. Why was it righteous? I think we could simply answer, because God did it. And God is righteous, and everything that God does is righteous. But it's not just that. It's more, more so because they made a covenant with God and they broke it. And that's the point of chapter 9 of Romans, right? The Jews made a covenant with God and they broke it. It's displaying that just because they were of Israel didn't mean they were truly Israel. But as we can see here, most of Israel were covenant breakers. That's right there in the text. Your numbers are as the sand of the sea, and only a remnant will be saved. Most of you within that nation of Israel are covenant breakers. And God's going to do away with you. But the good thing is, a remnant was saved. So let's go to our next point here. But the first point is the righteous judgment of God. The second point is, even within the righteous judgment of God, there is salvation. Praise God there's a remnant, right? Praise God that there's a remnant. Throughout the history of Israel, we can see that there was typically a remnant that God would save, and it wasn't the majority. Remnant actually means remains or few in comparison. See, this was the problem with Israel. They all proclaimed Yahweh as their God, and they still do. However, most of them don't even know Him. John tells us that, who was a Jew, right? He said, if you deny the Son, you deny the Father. If you deny the Son, He calls you an Antichrist. If you don't think Jesus is the Christ, you are Antichrist, is what John says. They all proclaim Yahweh as their God and they don't know Him. This was true then and it's still true today. Probably maybe more true today. Due to the blindness that God has set on them. Which we'll see coming up in Romans. But here's the, rea the reality about back then. The people made the covenant back with God. They made the covenant back with God. In other words, they say, if we do not obey the covenant, let our blood be upon us. That's what the covenants were like. That's why when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, there, there was an animal that was sliced in half and, and the, the, the the torch went through the middle of it. That's how they went. That's how they made covenants. They slaughtered an animal and they walked side by side through the middle of the animal saying, we will keep this covenant and if I break this covenant, do to me like what's done to this animal. That's what the Old Testament Israel did. They made the covenant back with God. Two parties come together and both parties say yes and amen to the covenant. But they also say, if I don't keep the covenant, I must die. 
And this is what Israel did. And then they proceeded to break the covenant. So God in His righteous judgment destroys them, but also saves the remnant. Even in the apostate nation that that, that was, there were still believers in it. There will be Jews that will meet in heaven one day. Because God kept them from idolatry. Remember, that's, that's, that, that was the whole point of Hosea, right? What was Gomer doing? She was going after false gods, really. To use nicer language. She was going after a false god. And he uses that to show that's what Israel was doing. They were going after false gods. But there was a remnant that God kept from chasing after false gods. That's what this is talking about here. And how can I say it, it was God that kept them? Because that's what it says, actually, in verse 29 of Romans 9 right there. I'm going to read that one again. <coughs> Except the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Except the Lord did it, we would have gone that way too. God is the one who's left, actually one, one of the translations says, left us a seed. It's God the one who has left the seed. Or as it said, we would have gone as Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm sure. Everybody knows that story. So even in a time period that a nation was being destroyed, God brought his elect out of that nation. And we can clear, clearly see this throughout history. One picture is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah is a very good picture of this. What happened? God didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah when his people were in there. He told his people to leave and then he destroyed it. We see this with Israel in that portion of scripture right there in Isaiah chapter 10. He saved a remnant. He kept a remnant from being destroyed as he destroyed Israel. And we actually see this also within the nation of Judah in 70 A.D. When Jesus told the early Christians to flee the city, and they fled, and then the city was destroyed. God takes his people out and then destroys. We know from history that's actually what happened there. So we can see salvation even in the righteous judgment of God. It was righteous for God to come and judge Israel. But he saved some. He saved the remnant. There's salvation even in his righteous judgment. Now, this I've only displayed a physical salvation, right? A temporary salvation. Just like when I mentioned the lady there at Jason's workplace. Yes, she has cancer. She's 74 years old. She has cancer. If you... God grants her a miracle where he heals her of cancer right now. She will still be dead soon. So, how great is that? Even if God saves his people and takes out a remnant before he destroys the nation, they will still be dead soon. Physical salvation is good, but it's not the end. I mean, it's definitely a good thing that God's people are not destroyed when he destroys nations. But if that's the end, then we are without true hope. It's great not to die when God judges a nation. But if we perish eternally, what good is that? Which takes me to my last point here. Righteous judgment 
God's righteous judgment is meted out on Christ. The greater picture is that God saves His people from eternal death. From eternal judgment. God judges nations. Yes, He does. We see that. But the greater picture is that He saves His people from eternal judgment. Not just that, that temporary judgment that, of Him destroying a nation, but eternal judgment. One day God will judge the whole earth. We all would say yes and amen to that, right? He will at the consummation. But your judgment as a Christian has been taken in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has shown you grace. Not just grace to save you from a nation being judged, but from you being judged. And the way He does it is by taking that judgment upon Himself. Right? That's not what He did with Israel, right? He destroyed Israel. And He saved a remnant. With, with, when, we, when we come to us, He crushed His Son in my place. In your place, elect of God. In God judging Israel, or Assyria, because He does judge Assyria right after that. In God judging them, they got exactly what they deserved. They were covenant breakers. They were pagan worshippers. That's exactly what they deserved was being crushed. If God were to crush you and send you to hell, you'd be getting exactly what you deserve. However, God sends His Son to take upon Him what you deserve. That hell that you deserve, that I deserve, that wrath that you and I deserve was taken upon the Son he took that hell upon himself. He took that flaming sword upon himself. That It says in the psalm, God has his bow bent ready to be drunk with your blood. That bow was spent on Christ. It was drunk in the blood of Christ for you. He got what he didn't deserve, so you can get what you don't deserve, which is grace and mercy and love. He didn't deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. And he never sinned. He kept the law and fulfilled righteousness, yet went to a cross as a spotless lamb to be slaughtered for a people that didn't deserve this grace. He was judged as though he was a covenant breaker. You think about that? Christ, when He was on the cross, He was being judged as though He was the covenant breaker. And He never broke the covenant. You did. And I did. And the Father crushed Him in place of you and I. But unlike the nations that God destroys, God raised up His Son from the grave. Victorious over death. And He ascended to the right hand where He makes intercession for us. Why does He do that? Because we need it. Except the Lord of Sabbath has left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You and I. You know what you could possibly hear Paul saying in that statement? Is you're not better than Sodom and Gomorrah. You may think you are, but you're not. Except the Lord does it, you would have gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're not better than them. 
We, if we thought like that, right? God judges nations and people, but I'm just like those people. And our nation is just like those nations. God could righteously judge me as well as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Or you. But he hasn't. And it's not inherently something in me, the reason. But it's on him. And it's in him. It's all, as, as Paul says in, 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 at the end of Romans chapter 11, he says, it's all from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And that's where Paul is taking us. Over the next two chapters, that's what Paul ends with. He takes us through this and, and displays that the Gentiles are grafted in. God had blinded the Jews. He had destroyed the nation of Israel. And he's grafted us all in together so we're one in Christ. But it says it's all of him. To him. Through him. Whether Jew or Gentile, all are one in Christ. And he saves from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Not just a remnant anymore. There was a remnant saved before, but the blessing of the new covenant is that it's expanded. Because our God is the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of Israel. Jesus is the propitiation, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, right? The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, not just Israel. So there will be, as it says in Revelation 7, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to His Lamb. There was a number that no man could count from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, not just Israel, all kings and nations will bow before Him in worship, and all the uttermost parts of the earth have been given to the Son. He has authority on heaven, in heaven and on, on, on earth and has told us that He's actually with us right now. He has authority in heaven and on earth, and He's with us right now. And He's told us to pray. What, what, how do you tell us to pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not simply the destruction of nations, but Christ is the blessing of the nations. So we see that salvation there, right? He is the seed spoken of to Abram that all families of the earth will be blessed through. He has came. He has come. Was judged in place of His elect. Rose from the grave. And has given us a message and a mission to take forth into all the world. And he has covenanted with his father that he has a bride. And they will be saved for his glory. We can rest in that, brethren. Yes, God judges nations. But when he does, his people are not present. He takes his people out. And we're all present here in this nation. And while we're present here, let's lay down our lives for the advancement of the kingdom and for the glory of His name. Amen? Let's go to our application. <clears throat> our call to faith and repentance. 
as always, to uh, address the unbeliever in here, the person in here that, that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You should actually have no comfort sitting here this morning. There should not be the slightest amount of comfort in you right now sitting in a church service. God is still the judge. He will judge you in your sin. He still has the ability and the will to judge sin and sinners. And He still does it. So you ought not to have comfort in your sin. It's the, the, the word there says, the Lord will execute His word thoroughly and quickly. He says He'll judge sinners. And you can rest assured that He will. When I say God's a covenant keeping God and He does what He says He's going to do, that, that involves this too, that He will judge sinners. He, command, he says He's going to do it, He's going to do it. However, that judgment is meted out in Christ. It's, it's poured out. That justice is poured out upon Christ. That justice that, that you and I deserve for breaking God's law was poured out on Christ for His elect's sake. All the punishment for the sins of the elect is placed on Christ on that cross and He was punished in their place. And this is true forgiveness for sins. And there's only one place to find that. And it's at Calvary. It's at Christ. He kept the law perfect. Perfectly. He died for sin. He rose from the grave and ascended to sit down victorious over death. And only He did this. That's why there can't be many ways to heaven. There's only one man that came down from heaven that lived a perfect life, died for sin, rose from the grave and ascended and is sitting on the Father's right hand right now. Only one. And that's the only one that you can come to for true salvation. And your response should be to repent of your sins and believe upon Him this morning. Not sit in comfort as though you're okay in your sin. If God crushed His Son over sin, don't think for a second He wouldn't do the same to you. And I plead with you to repent and believe upon Him this morning. So to us believers in here, remember it said you would have gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not you might have, you would have gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. If it weren't for the mercy of God, Sodom and Gomorrah is you. Raining down fire and brimstone would be on you. However, it's not. And it's only due to the mercy of God. We have to praise God continually. That we haven't gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we ought to turn from our sins and believe the promises of God. Yes, even as believers, right? We need to still repent and believe. And we can actually rest in the fact that God will execute His word. We can trust that our God is a covenant-keeping God, or to put it simply, that He does what He says. We can rest in that. The words of man, we cannot rest in. But we can rest on the words of God. So let us believe that. If God said it, we can believe it with all of our hearts. If He promised to send forth His Son to save a people and He did that, we can most assuredly believe that He's also with that going to work out all things for your good and for His glory. And nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's the whole reason for Paul's argument in Romans 9 is to prove that. And we ought to believe it. Let's go on to our call to war. 
We have been given mercy and grace and love that we don't deserve. So therefore, we ought to do the same. Not just to our friends and family, but also to our enemies. We ought to be the first to show grace and mercy and love as believers. Especially those that say they believe in the doctrines of grace. You tell me you believe in the doctrines of grace and I see no grace coming out of your mouth? We ought to be the most gracious of people. However, oftentimes we look down at our nose, look down our nose at people that don't act like we think they ought to act, right? We, we see Sodom and Gomorrah and we're like, I, I would never do that. Well, that's not what Paul just said. He said, except the Lord kept you from that, you would have gone that way. And sometimes it's not even when they're sinning. It's not even sin that they're doing. You just don't like it. Maybe, maybe they don't raise their kids the way that you think they should raise their kids. Well, is it sin? No? Then worry about yourself. They don't, they don't work the same way or act the same way that you think they should. Is it sin? No? Then mind your own business. Not everyone is like you or me. So be gracious. That should be our overwhelming attribute. Is, is grace and love, right? As Christians. It should rule us. I say this earnestly. That should be our character. It should be our first instinct to be gracious and loving. And what does that mean? Well, it means to give what isn't earned. Right? That's what grace is. To give what isn't earned. It means that love covers a multitude of sins. Has someone sinned against you? Forget it. Move on. That's actually what the verse is talking about. Love covers multitudes. They sinned against me. I forgot about it and moved on. That's what that means. To forgive as you've been forgiven. Let God bring up your sins to you. Praise God he doesn't do that, right? Praise God to this TV right here. I can't hook it into me somehow. And all my thoughts and sins come up on this screen. He took them all away. And he doesn't bring them up anymore. But we as believers sure do want to bring up other sins, don't we? Maybe this is more telling of us than it is of others. Jesus said to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If we practice this, there would be less problems, right? We just forgave our, the person that sinned against me, I'll, I'll just forgive them and move on and love them. And the truth is, if we've been forgiven, shown mercy, grace, and love, we will show mercy, grace, and love. That's what, when Jesus says, forgive, forgive us our debtors as we have been forgiven our debt, or forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, that's what that means. You will forgive. It's not, it's not an option. You will. 
When you look at the cross and see all my sins hanging right there, how can I not forgive somebody else? How can I not love this person? How can I not be gracious to that person? This is a war we must fight within ourselves, right? This is, this is the war within. And this is what we must display to a lost, dying world. That we are gracious and loving. And in that, we bring the gospel message, which is a message of grace and love. Simply preaching the gospel to somebody is gracious and loving. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. That's, that's mean. That's, that's, that's hatred. No, it's not. It's gracious and loving for me to preach the gospel to you. And God's promised to save his people through it. He will execute his word thoroughly and quickly. And he says his word won't return void. So believe that. And take his message out into the world and be gracious and loving to people. This is actually the opposite of the wars that the world, the way the, 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 way the world wages war, right? They're not gracious and loving in war. When they go to war, it's not about grace and love. When we go to war, that's what it's about. So let's go to war for the kingdom, displaying what our Father has displayed in us, or to us, in Christ, and take forth the gospel for the advancement of His kingdom and the glory of His name. Amen.